Welcome back to the Director's Wall, Season 2 Coppola cast. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm one of your hosts, Brian Connolly. Well, we are here. Finally, we made it to Francis Ford Coppola's Jack. Jack? I know. I was just saying before we recorded here that that felt like so far away. There was a time in this podcast where it's like, oh, someday we'll do Jack, but that's so far from now and yet here we are here we are doing jack 1996 uh much much maligned coppola film maybe his most as we can discuss that i feel like that's worth discussing but like i think this may be his most hated movie in some regards um but uh first before we get into jack let's what what are you drinking all right so i am drinking a Francis Coppola Diamond Collection Pinot Grigio 2019. Ooh, I'm doing Francis Ford Coppola Diamond Collection Pinot Grigio 2020. Yours is more vintage, I guess, by a year. (laughs) It's got a cool uh, light green label on it. Yeah. And it, you know, it's a white, but it's a little bit green. It kind of looks like, uh, you know, like Sprite or something. (laughs) I can see that. <laughs> I like it. I think it's really good. I, it's a, it's a good for a you know ninety nine degree day such as today here in Austin, Texas, and uh, yeah, very yeah, uh, like it, very mild ninety nine degrees here <laughs> today. No, seriously, it's been triple digits since months. May. <laughs> I know it was like the other day I was outside and it was ninety five, and I was like, ah, oh, this feels great. And normally I'd be like, this is too hot, but. 15 degrees cooler is better, and uh, I'll take it. Uh, well, great. We're both doing Pinot Grigio. That's that's very exciting. Let's see. Our Diamond Collection Pinot Grigio offers refreshing flavors of tangerine, peaches, and pink grapefruit with notes of juicy pears and a touch of minerals. Delicious with grilled fish, I believe it, a spinach salad, or light brunch fare, or light brunch fare. Light brunch fare, meaning like one waffle as opposed to four, is my guess, is what they mean. I, I guess. <laughs> like fare. salmon. Is brunch but... ever light? I always feel like it's, I know it's the meal between breakfast and lunch, but in my mind, I always think of like Easter brunch on Easter Sunday, we eat a lot of food. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I just feel brunch. like br- people are so psyched up about brunch that they just go to town, you know? Yeah. Well, because you're you haven't eaten breakfast, so you're still hungry. Yeah. And then you're like, I could wait till lunch, but it's eleven o'clock. Fuck it, I'm just gonna eat everything in front of me. Everything. Not to say I won't eat some fruit with those four waffles, but still, I'm gonna eat four waffles for brunch. This is what's yeah, going on. Probably cantaloupe in there somewhere. It's brunch. <laughs> yeah, brunch often always goes with cantaloupe. Well, I wonder why is that? Cantaloupe is a, is a common brunch fruit. But you know who would not like brunch? The main character in this movie, Jack. <laughs> so, I believe it's your turn, AJ. Why don't you take us through the journey that is Jack? All right. So, Jack is a pretty simple movie, pretty simple premise. Young Jack has a, a aging disorder that makes his body grow at four times the natural rate. 
So by the time he's 10 years old, he looks like he's 40 years old and is played by Robin Williams. And his mother, uh, played by Diane Lane, has been very uh, protective of him and has kept him at home where he's had a private tutor. And it's decided it's time to finally send Jack to regular public school so he can have friends and live a full kid life. And the movie's about him trying to, uh, you know, get by in the average kid world, even though he looks like Robin Williams and he's too big for everything. And kids, you know, make fun of him at first and then they accept him. And then he has kind of like, you know, uh, special uh, like circumstances that happen because of his his disorder, including health problems. Movie gets a bit serious, but not really with extrapolating how like, well, is Jack even going to live to graduate from high school? He does. And he ends up being a valedictorian, gives a very moving speech. And uh, that's pretty much Jack. We will talk about the specifics of it here in a moment. <laughs> and what's interesting is that there is an actual disease that kids get called progeria that is more or less this in real life, where it's where they kind of like their body ages rapidly. Like they don't look like a grown up. But if you've ever seen like pictures of what some of progeria looks like, they kind of look almost like a little old man in a way. And it's really sad. I remember as a kid, there was an episode of That's Incredible. I don't know if you remember that show. There was a show called That's Incredible. I believe it was hosted by or hosted by John Davidson. And uh, they had a special story about a kid with progeria. And I remember my mom being so sad by the story and just crying and crying. This is when I was like six. And so it is said there's like there are these kids that have this disease where they don't live that long, but their bodies kind of like rapidly age very, you know, very quickly. And so this is definitely the more lighthearted take, more fairy tale take on an actual disease that in a way exists. Yeah, he uh, the there's a scene with doctors where they say this is not uh, that that real disease. They make that clear. <laughs> not how like movies for a while uh the way they were with Tourette's were like, this is funny. Having Tourette's <laughs> is funny. I'm like, no, it, it's not funny. And it's also not like that, how you're showing it in the movies. Or like uh, how Hollywood is with all mental illness and all. <laughs> oh yeah. Like those for the longest time, autism is basically a superpower that you had. <laughs> or yeah. like how OCD is like this quirky thing that you, you know, that Jack Nicholson has, you know, that, you know is, a, is a quirky neighbor or whatever. Oh, isn't that funny? Isn't it funny, this crippling mental disease? So there is, there is a line where they, uh, they distinguish this isn't that disease, it's something else. And he's going to be totally uh, healthy, but he's just going to age physically at four times the normal rate. Why four? So that you can cast Robin Williams to play 10-year-old Jack. <laughs> And I feel like this is definitely Coppola doing a fairy tale, which a thing, which is a thing he's done before. Like I feel like we've seen the fairy tale theater episode we talked about, where he did uh, Rip Van Winkle. I think One from the Heart, in a way, is very much like a fairy tale uh, in, a, in a strange way. And then and this Peggy is Sue got married. Peggy Sue got married, very much so. Uh, very much his, his his segment of New York stories, Life with Zoe. Uh, but like this, this definitely feels like from the get go, you understand that this movie from the very beginning, 
is not going to be like some tear jerking, depressing thing about a kid with the disease because it starts with this sort of costume party. Uh, as all good couple of movies start with a party. He just loves starting movies with parties. <laughs> he must, you think as a kid he was deprived of uh, parties, so now he's got to just make these movies. No, I bet it's because his family was huge and Italian and they always had parties and gatherings. And in his mind, that's the best way to start a story, introduce a bunch of characters is just have them attend a party. And the party in this movie is a, is a Halloween party so everybody's in these kind of crazy costumes. And this is when Diane Lane's character goes into labor. And it's just like this weird, it already gives you this weird feeling of like, this is not quite a comedy, but this is not quite reality because she's dressed up as, um, there's like a Wizard of Oz thing going on, right? And, but yes. she's dressed up as a witch and every, and then, but there's all these other characters and like, that that part steals so much like also like his segment in New York stories, which had a costume party, like where you see people kind of in pop culture kind of costumes like Wizard of Oz stuff, but also like kind of the, the Tin Man, the dead dad, who's the, he's dressed as a Tin Man and he's going to the hospital and he has to keep going through the metal detector. <laughs> so we're already getting setting. like slapstick yeah. in the first few minutes. Someone um, comes in to the hospital and they're dressed as a carton of cigarettes and the security guard says, I'm sorry, no smoking. <laughs> so you're getting he, less. Where to get go? Yeah, he goes, oh, shucks. And then kind of walks away. <laughs> and just like with Life with Zoe, that's what it's called, right? The New York Stories segment? Yes, yes. Uh, it has zany font for the opening credits of this, like painfully zany font for Jack. So you know within the first five minutes that this is going to be a bit of a comedic film. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Mad Dog Time, The Paperboy, Mordecai, after last season. The World is Wrong is an extremely positive podcast where Andras Jones and Brian Connolly champion films The World is Wrong About. Available on Paperhouse Network wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> yeah, so there's this juxtaposition in, I guess, tone that I don't think ever really gels well, where you have a, like a pretty serious situation. If you like think about that, like extrapolate that, like uh, when Diane Lane is being rushed into the emergency room, she keeps saying, it's too soon, it's too soon. And that next to... Like, yeah, her husband keeps setting off the metal detector because he's in a costume <laughs> of the Tin Man. Uh, and that's that's the whole movie, you know? Yeah, the tone of this movie is very strange. And I don't know if it ever quite gets it right or works. Having said that, though, I do like this movie. So I, I, I'll say up front at the beginning, I like Jack. I think Jack is a good movie. I enjoy this movie. I laugh at this movie. There are jokes that I like, like you said, the, the, the metal detector. Like I'm laughing at that joke. It's a stupid joke, but I'm laughing. Uh, I uh, I did not like this movie. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I I feel like, but I do like I I'm like compelled to feel an affection for this movie, and I think that's because of the presence of Robin Williams. I feel, I feel that like then when I saw the movie, 
in theaters in 1996 when I was like 10 or 11. And, and then when I watched it again for this podcast, and those are the only two times I've seen this movie. Robin Williams had that thing where like, even if the movie didn't look good or it wasn't good, he still like had feelings because he's such a, he's such a good emotive actor. Like he's really good at just emoting and just like letting you know his feelings that you can't help but like feel with him. At least that's kind of my experience with like literally every Robin Williams movie. And then especially knowing now like his tragic real life end, it makes it even more emotional and more intense. And just like even things like Mrs. Doubtfire when he hits those points of emotion, I get caught up in it and get and get emotional. Like he plays sad and disappointed and let down so well. Like it's so bully and he's so what's great about Robin Williams is he'll be in movies like Jack or Mrs. Doubtfire or you know whatever and like Fisher King or anything where the plots themselves are kind of ludicrous and like a fairy tale but he grounds it in some weird even though he was known originally as like this crazy comedian he just there's something about his emotions that'll ground an insane plot into some humanity he brings so much humanity and I feel like that definitely happens here in with Jack there are wonderful touching moments in the movie that <laughs> Are just because of Robin Williams's like gentle, expressive face. The scenes of him like being made fun of by the other kids and being like uh, nervous and not knowing what to do. Like when they, uh, when it's like recess and he just hides in the, he just hides in this uh, tunnel, or they're playing basketball and he doesn't know what to do. They're, they're like almost like painful to watch. <laughs> But it's also really funny, like seeing a grown-up Robin Williams jump into his parents' bed between his two parents is hilarious to me. But so much of the humor of this movie is, oh, Marmaduke, you're too big for that. <laughs> yeah, they definitely do a lot of the he's physically large, like a lot of him getting stuck in the desk at school and falling over. They do that joke a few times, like more than once that they deliver that joke. <laughs> There, but the movie also gets very strange. <laughs> I think before we go more into the plot, do you have kind of any insight into the making of, I have a little bit based on my research, but not. there's not a lot out there. This isn't a movie that people asked for any record of, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's not going to be a mini series about the making of the offer. But uh, very, from what uh... I can tell is that originally... John Travolta was going to be the star of this or at some point John Travolta was going to be Jack like he really wanted to be Jack I read that uh, which would have been a trivia very strange that would have been an even weirder movie because John Travolta's never played anyone like this like this clearly feels like a Robin Williams movie so the idea of having like yeah John Travolta's never played silly like he's played comedy and he's good in comedy but played silly i feel like you can ex uh, describe his performance in battlefield earth as silly <laughs> <laughs> or you know he can he can ham it up he plays it big he's not afraid to go big uh like in, in the hairspray remake he's he's doing okay, silly yeah. that. he's doing good but I, i've never seen him do this sort of innocent thing there's just something kind of inherently cool about john travolta and this would have been right after like his pulp like the 96 is like so soon after like Pulp Fiction and Get Shorty. It's the idea of the idea of him 
in my mind, like it would have just kind of felt more like him playing like a special needs person or something. Like, I don't think it would have connected in the same way that like, it wouldn't feel like a kid in the way that Robin Williams can make it feel like a kid in a man's body. I just don't see John Travolta being able to get to the same place as an actor for this kind of role that Robin Williams has done many times. Like there's nothing new about what Robin Williams is doing here. Like he's basically playing how he is in everything, but just, he just happens to be a, a kid in this one. Whereas like he acts basically like a grown up kid in Mrs. Doubtfire, which is why Sally Field leaves him. And, and he has to go back as Mrs. Doubtfire. Like he's always playing this sort of giant child and so it makes sense that he would play this this giant child. And I guess he wanted to do this movie, but there was some weird thing. This is like a Disney produced movie. It's Touchstone, I think. It's a Hollywood. Oh, Hollywood. Hollywood. The, the Sphinx I, was their logo. Oh, that's right. And I didn't realize that Rob Williams was mad at Disney because he didn't want his name in the advertising for Aladdin. And like, and they, of course, that's like the main thing that they sold Aladdin on was that Robin was the genie. And so there was some weird thing with him at Disney and somehow that made it so he either forced them to make this with him or he wasn't going to do it. They made up. I don't know. I don't really understand the details, but there was some weird thing having to do with him being pissed off at them for how they treated him with Aladdin to him making Jack. And I guess he was the one who wanted Francis Ford Coppola to direct it. He went, just like with sort of the last few Coppola movies we've talked about, it's people coming to him and being like, hey, do you want to make this? It's not like some passion project that Coppola's had. I feel it's been a while since we've had a passion project. Maybe since Peggy Sue got married, <laughs> there was a thing that he seemed, or I think that was given to him too. Like, what, that was like, given to him too. Like, uh, like, what was the last movie that he... Tucker. Tucker. Okay, so Tucker was the last movie by him that he was like really wanted to make. And then after that, you have Godfather 3 brought to him, Dracula, and now this. Um, and it's an odd choice. I don't know. I think they were friends or something. And that's why I thought a couple, but there's nothing like in this script that makes you think that this would be a Francis Ford Coppola movie, other than you're thinking it'll be like a Peggy Sue got married sort of thing of like this person like Peggy Sue got married is also kind of a, an older person playing a younger person kind of via time travel in that one or whatever you, you know you read that movie so I'm, I'm wondering if it was like based on that you're right it's not really odd that Coppola would do uh, a kid's movie you know uh, having done like uh, Life Without Zoe which is basically a, a kid's movie a weird one and Jack is a weird kid's movie yeah but it's weird that it was this one and how he got here is basically the Robin Williams thing. Uh, that's like the most solid information I can find. And I don't know, yeah, if it was Disney. Disney was trying to make up with Robin Williams. And I don't know if, yeah, this was something Williams wanted. And so Disney went along with it. Or if it's something that Disney like threw at Williams and Coppola as like a way to make amends for the way they... Uh, went against his wishes for Aladdin. But Coppola, the last time we talked about him, had just finished Dracula. He got out of debt. So every- Hooray, confetti. Hooray, yeah. He finally, after over a decade of being in debt, finally got out of debt. He's out of debt. He can do 
you know, whatever he wants. Dracula made a lot of money and then studios are, the studio is very happy. That was Columbia. And so Coppola, the next thing he wanted to do was a passion project. He wanted to make a live action Pinocchio. Oh, like all, oh, okay. like all large bearded filmmakers, he really wants to do a live action <laughs> Pinocchio, but a dark live action Pinocchio. <laughs> Are you insinuating that who's the other one? Is Guillermo del Toro? Yeah, Guillermo del Toro. Pinocchio? His Pinocchio is set in like, like fascist <laughs> Italy, like 1930s Italy and like the Mussolini and the fascist play. Like, is that like, actually happening? It. Yeah, I think that the trailer for it is out. Oh, wow. Yeah. Man. Um, wow. and okay. Coppola did want he wanted to do like not not the Disney version. He wanted to follow the book because I guess Pinocchio is based on a book. He would change it so that it was would be set in uh, war torn Bosnia. Oh, okay. <laughs> so like current, be, like nineties war torn Bosnia, yeah. like current at that time. Yeah, okay. at that current was, at that it, time, it'd be set then, and like an old man. A, a Geppetto type, if you will, has to like take a bunch of kids to safety. And so he's got all these uh, kids. He's trying to get them through war-torn Bosnia to safety. And they find a beat up copy of, uh, of Pinocchio and he starts reading it to them. And then the kids, whoever the main character kid is, then imagines Pinocchio with uh, the, the cast there. So, huh. So the, the kid would be Pinocchio and the old man would be Geppetto. Sounds intense. <laughs> that kind of thing. And he had taken that project to Warner Brothers back in the 80s, around the time of like Tucker. And he sold it as a three picture deal with, uh, so it'd be his live action Pinocchio, a biography, a biopic of J. Edgar Hoover and <laughs> a movie adaptation of The Secret Garden. Okay, which he ended uh, up producing. He didn't direct it, but they, he produced a version of that. But then Coppola decides, okay, I want to make, now is the time I'm going to make Pinocchio because that was going to be a very personal project. He didn't want studio interference. And now he's debt free. He can, and Warner Brothers, things didn't pan out there. And so he's like, well, I'm going to take my project to another studio. Warner Brothers says, no, you can't because we bought the idea for that movie we're going to make, but you can go make another movie, but we're making a Pinocchio movie. And if Columbia, the studio he just worked with with Dracula, tries to make that movie, we will sue them. So Columbia says, sorry, <laughs> Coppola, you just made us a lot of money, but we can't, we can't direct this live action, action Pinocchio. So Coppola says, well, the hell with it. I'm going to focus on my vineyard. And he just works on his vineyard. He expands his vineyard. It was next to another vineyard that had this old style, like Spanish chateau. I know chateau is French, but the Spanish were the ones that colonized <laughs> the area. Yeah. And so he bought that. He bought that land, bought the chateau and really expanded the vineyard. And then uh, needed more money to invest in his vineyard. And then, and that, that's the, the literal like last sentence of one chapter in the Coppola biography before he starts making Jack with no real mention of how he like uh, came to it. Of course, one of the, the reasons 
is that he wanted to make a kids movie that his granddaughter Gia could watch. And the movie <laughs> is uh, at the end, it's dedicated to Gia Coppola. Nice. Uh, I don't know what child would actually enjoy this movie because it's too strange. <laughs> I, it took me to be a grown up to like this movie as a, as a younger person. I don't think I had any interest in watching this. And it's just such a strange movie. And it's a kind of the tone again, like the tone is so weird where you never feel quite like you're having fun or it's good because there's this kind of constant dark cloud over the whole movie that this guy's going to die sooner than later. <laughs> and so it's hard to like totally let yourself go into this, the fun of the movie because of this doom and gloom of like, this guy has this much time left and then he's going to die. And because so much of what he goes through is like him, him having the struggle of being this grown up, you know, in this kid's world. Um, and the movie gets real silly at times, but I feel it always kind of like circles back to this sort of like weird, there's something just weird and off about it. Like you go from him like eating a bunch of junk food and like eating a bunch of like, they have this gag where all the kids throw all this garbage into like a thing that they eat like worms and dirt and toothpaste. So you have that, which is like silly and that could be fun. And that feels like a scene from, you know, like a Nickelodeon thing or something. But then you have the uncomfortable thing of him like being sad in a bar and trying to drink alcohol because he's a child, but he looks like a grown up, so he can get drunk. And it's just sort of like this off. That is, a, that is a <laughs> an odd, dark, and I, like it, it's dark like for the movie. It's not like all of a sudden you know, fucking David Mamet took over. <laughs> like Michael McKeon and Don Novello are still there. But it's just like, uh, yep, he's like in a bar. He's trying to like drink his his problems away. And Fran Drescher thinks that he's a, he's a grown up because the way they met was he was pretending to be the principal of the school to help mm -hmm. out a classmate who was in trouble. Yeah. And so she's like hitting on him. And then Jack gets in a fight uh, with someone else at the bar, and that's it's it's yeah, a it's memorable not... it's a memorable but odd scene. It's not like a bad <laughs> scene, but it's just it's very peculiar. Yeah, and the Fred Drescher stuff gets uncomfortable in the same way it's uncomfortable when you think about what Tom Hanks is up to in Big, where you're like any yeah. movie where it's about like a kid who all of a sudden is a grown-up or looks like a grown-up, but then things get real sexual with like a grown-up person. That's when it just gets sort of strange. The, 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 bo the body of someone, an adult, a uh, legally legal adult, but the, the mind and behaviors of a child. <laughs> so it all feels kind of icky. Or if I had children that was watching with them, there would be like some uncomfortable conversation following those parts or something. Uh, but it's where those movies always go there. But I guess it also makes sense of like, well, why wouldn't someone hit on him? He looks like a man. But then it's just, it's it's uncomfortable and strange yeah, yeah. because you know that um, he's actually eight or whatever. Is the uh, script doesn't really, the script thinks that it's a kid's script or wants to act like it's a kid's script and not focus on the implications of a, a child mind and soul, I guess, in an adult an adult man's body and all the problems and that that would uh, that that would uh, entail and just wants to focus on 
they're like, he's too big for that tree house. <laughs> and you have like the weird jokes too of like the heartwarming moment when he brings all the kids pornography. <laughs> that stuff like that's like so like there's nothing really to it, right? He buys them uh you know a penthouse and like not not Playboy, but like the serious one, penthouse, you know. <laughs> the serious one, yeah. Like this is yeah, that's like more, we don't fucking one pretend to have articles okay <laughs> like yeah there's a short story there's a thing by gore vidal in here that you're not going to read like no like larry flint and the hustlers like yeah, we're not gonna pretend okay yeah, he buys them a penthouse and they look at it and it's just like and they're just all impressed that he can he can get it and there's nothing really uncomfortable in what happens when right when they're looking at at the penthouse magazine the the joke is like oh he he can get it he can get the, the pornography for them and but that's still it's something like that even as uh, as almost benign as that scene is you know that wouldn't be in a movie that wouldn't be in a movie today if they made this movie well, i like the idea in my mind of like if someone did a fan edit where you just made rebel wings a grown-up and what does that feel like to have this guy <laughs> just bringing porn to kids in the tree house? <laughs> uh then bill cosby shows up <laughs> oh yeah so bill cosby's in this movie let's just get that out of the way yeah he plays the the uh the private tutor that uh, Jack's parents have hired to teach him things. And, you know, after a while, Jack, uh, he's always like looking out the window at the other kids playing. And he's the one that recommends that they uh, send him to to public school so he can be, you know, a real, be a real child, be a real boy, like Pinocchio. Kind yeah, of he's getting his Pinocchio, Pinocchio check boxes in this, in this movie. Uh, and Bill Cosby's kind of in his classic sort of friendly dad facade, uh, his Cosby show, sort of like, I'm going to be serious and stern at times, but then be kind of silly. And they make him eat the gross mix of food as he's hanging out in the treehouse. Uh, and there's this great scene. I really love the scene when the treehouse collapses. That part looks really cool. However, they did that, where they're inside the treehouse. It's, it's kind of very much like, the scene in Jurassic Park where they're in the car and it's dropping down. And it down falls down. through the tree, so, yeah. The... <laughs> so it's like them kind of going, like this trio's dropping, dropping with everybody in it. And um, it stays like almost intact. <laughs> a lot of good farting impressive. in those farting jokes. You never thought you'd see a couple uh, movie with a lot of farts in it. Okay, yeah, this is something. <laughs> the scene, so what the kids do in the clubhouse, so you mentioned they like put a whole bunch of like gross stuff in a pot or a bowl and then they make someone eat it and that they make someone eat it so that that kid farts and then they all like smell it and try to guess what was in it or something and there's like two or three scenes like this and then bill cosby goes up there and then he takes place in this uh farting extravaganza <laughs> farting contest experiment and it's disgusting. I hate it. I hate it. It makes me sick. It makes me want to gag. I couldn't watch the movie directly. I'd like watch it out of the corner of my eye. 
So that more upsetting than the horse head scene in The Godfather is what you're yeah, saying. It's more it's upsetting to me than, than than the Takashi Miike movies I watched this weekend. <laughs> so Ichi the Killer on the same is not as shocking as. Oh, Jack. I never looked away when I watched. I never like <laughs> thought I might. I never got a foul uh, <laughs> taste in my mouth and had to avert my eyes from the screen <laughs> while you, watching Ichi the Killer. But I did the Jack. Uh, do you have something against fart jokes in movies in general? Is that kind of a, a turnoff? It, like not not handle not particularly. Like, there's a um, there's a scene like blazing in blazing saddles. Blazing <laughs> saddles, like yeah. for like me, that's fine. There's a scene in Harold and Kumar go to White Castle where they're trapped in the girls' bathroom, and the two girls that they were planning on hooking up with are on they're on either sides of them in in the stall, and they're having like like a farting shitting contest who, who, can make, who can make the loudest sound and Harold and Kumar they're trapped in the uh they're trapped in the bathroom stall because they're hiding out from a security guard and they're like ah they're trying to like be quiet and then the, finally John Cho says I can't take it anymore and you know burst out so of what stall. is it about this is it is it's more like that they're like describing it they're tasting it they're, yeah I think it, I, I think immersive. it's that it's that and like it's and that's that's the end of it there's really nothing nothing to it like in that Harold and Kumar scene for me the real joke is how uncomfortable John Cho and Cal Penn are with uh, with these girls farting <laughs> and and their reaction shots it's focusing mainly on their disgusted reaction shots but here it's just like they they farted isn't that funny that's the joke like and for you're me, like no it's not <laughs> no it, like it ranks up there with the uh the the vomiting scene and stand by me as to like random gross things in movies that i can barely watch that scene is great though in stand by me it is great this is a great scene and it's a <laughs> it's a story that that gordy tells to the other kids so there's like yeah. sort of context for it it's not just like the kids <laughs> all decide now we're gonna fart because that's what we do we're kids but i feel like that's very much of this time of the mid 90s like this is so much like the height of like nickelodeon like ren and stimpy like yeah yeah sort of like farting bodily function humor is very much i mean kids always like that stuff always so if they if you look at it as if they were really trying to make this a movie that kids would like I feel like Ren and Stimpy fans would like, you know, fart wars between children in the treehouse. <laughs> but uh, for me, the funnier jokes to me is like the physical humor, like Robin Williams jumping the bed, like I said. Or I don't know if it's supposed to be funny, but when he's upset and he's running away, but he's got those light up sneakers. So he's like, he's running away, totally upset, but then his sneakers are like flickering because he has those obnoxious shoes that kids had in the 90s where they lit mm -hmm. up when you when you step i don't know if that's still a thing but that was very popular when i was you know young young man um <laughs> and I, I i don't know i just like do you find any of this movie funny uh yeah i th there are things i find funny <laughs> like the the costume gags they get me um yeah i like robin williams is like his his self is like his Robin Williams shtick when he is like pretending to be a, a grown up, which he is when it, whenever he's like buying 
the like the the penthouse at the the convenience store and so he's acting you know like like a nervous kid he's acting like <laughs> like more more grown up the scene in the bar when he is he actually kind of gets to be the straight man and yeah. michael mckeon is the other bar patron yeah. is like hey like stranger at the bar i'm gonna talk to you and like <laughs> oh man like isn't work tough <laughs> like i i really think that is funny and it helps that, that it's michael mckeon it's funny because it's like michael mckeon too trying to say dirty things about fran drescher but robin williams's character not really picking up on it so every answer he has to every grown-up thing michael mckeon says is an honest answer if you're a kid you don't understand what the guy's saying so there's like a fun kind of like almost like an abbott and costello misunderstanding between two people in that scene and you mentioned it in passing, but this is the return of Don Novello, who's clearly Coppola's new Pacino. This is who he wants to work with in every movie. He didn't show up in Dracula, but he's back. <laughs> Here he is, Don Novello, Father Guido Sarducci, again. In a, I had no idea he had a career beyond Saturday Night Live being Me in neither. five plus Francis Ford Coppola movies. <laughs> me neither and you know he was like even if it was a just a joke you know he was giving coppola shit for not putting him in dracula like even as father guido sarducci yeah it would have been great like father guido sarducci trying to like put a stake in dracula's heart or yeah there could have been some italian uh doctor somewhere (laughs) i'm like because so far what do we have so far with with guido he was in what was the first one? He was in Tucker. He was in New York Stories. He was in The Godfather Part Three. Three, yeah. And, and now here we are in Jack. And is this the end? I feel this must be the end of his uh, career. Oh, no. Twist. He's in Twixt. So we're going to see him again when we get to Twixt. So, and clearly he must be like a family friend or something. Because then he's also in Palo Alto, the movie that's directed by Gia Coppola. So clearly there's something about Don Novello that like clicked with the Coppola family. We're like, this guy, this, this guy's funny. And like, is he like, he's not actually from Italy, right? Like Father Guido Seducci is a character and he's got to be from America, right? Like, I don't know a lot about, like, I, know, I remember there was a book he put out called... Oh, I forget. I think it's called like the Novello Letters or something, where it's him writing different letters to companies. I think it's, it was like a jokey book that I read as a kid, um, and it's it, and like that. Like, oh, the Laszlo Letters <clears throat> is what it's called. I don't know why it's called that. Um, fake name, maybe he did. Uh, but uh, it's nice to see Don Novello have a career. I know, like a secret career. I think that's my big takeaway. From doing season two is that Don Novello had a film career with Francis Ford <laughs> and here he's very funny as the confused bartender as to why Jack is acting like a stranger you know like a weird guy when he's trying to just serve him drinks like he normally does um, Don Novello was born on New Year's Day in Lorraine Ohio so not from Italy but his family must be why would I would guess (laughs) uh but yeah it's good to know that we're gonna see him again in uh 
Twix. I was hoping he was going to show up as like a, law, a southern lawyer in, the, in our in our next episode with the John Grisham movie, The Rainmaker, but I guess not. So <laughs> we'll get to wait till Twix. I don't know who he is in Twix. I'm excited to see John Novello pop up in that. It'll be very fun. Um, <laughs> it's it is funny though that so like a lot of the so the, like I mentioned at the beginning that this is maybe the most hated Coppola movie. And I think it's worth talking on and worth touching on. I feel like this is often used as an example when people talk about directors that should have stopped making movies or directors that like, can you believe the guy who made The Godfather made da 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 and usually it's Jack. And like we've, we've brought up that people say that a lot about literally everything he made after Apocalypse Now, you know, through now that like a lot of people always compare it to the greatest movies of all time, which happened to be the first few movies by this filmmaker, which is unfair. But I feel like Jack is often used as sort of the, the sample that people like to draw to of like, he became so shitty, he made Jack. <clears throat> and I feel it's unfair in many, for many reasons, but I'm interested to hear kind of what you think about that first before I go into sort of my defense of jack since you didn't like the movie would you use this as this sample of like because i want to say like i don't know if tarantino said it specifically but when he talks about how he's only going to ever do 10 movies and be done he i think he's often mentioned like coppola as like some directors just kind of go past their time blah 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 jack is not so great (laughs) compared to maybe he should have stopped at dracula and been done made a great other epic movie and be over with so what do what do you think about that I think that uh, Jack is, I mean, it's just a, a sort of generic 90s kids movie. And I think that Coppola, uh, you know, didn't put a whole lot of himself into the movie. Like he connected with uh, the themes and ideas like, uh, you know, like like we did with uh, tying it into Pinocchio, which he didn't get to make. And like, it's a... Uh, you know, a person of mentally is one age, but physically is another age. It's like Peggy Sue got married. So like there there are Coppola-like things in it. But yeah, this isn't really a Coppola movie. And it, it doesn't help that Coppola does not have a distinct like visual style or aesthetic. Like, I mean, the most obvious one is like Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm with the way his movies look or Woody Allen with the way the, what his movies are about or Scorsese like slips in that there are like visual things like, like the, you know, he's basically a, a a new wave director with like some, there'll be some quick editing here and there. And Copeland never really had any of that. He was, he would just find through the material how to make like the best artistic version of something he didn't want to make, like The Godfather, you know? Uh, and then, yeah, throughout the 80s, like, that kind of died away. Like, he, like Peggy Sue Got Married is good, but it's not like he, you know, it doesn't have the stark Gordon Willis uh, cinematography and the, the, so the scenes don't look like a Caravaggio painting, you know? Like, that's the most perplexing thing about jack is that it is a coppola movie this is like one he seemed to like uh wanted to make it on some level because you know he could have picked any kind any kind of kids movie and kind of just like okay like 
let's roll cameras, let's put it together. There's nothing really, I mean, not since I think like Gardens of Stone has there been a movie so of his so kind of devoid of style. But in yeah. a way, that's kind of what this movie needs because it is just a kid's movie. And I felt like even even though it's like a weird kid's movie, like he knew he was making just a kid's movie. Yeah, he he needed more money for his for his vineyard. <laughs> but I don't think it's just as cynical as that. Like he was like Alfred Hitchcock on a movie he didn't want to make, like, you know, just sleeping, you know. <laughs> Which Hitchcock movie was chair. that? <laughs> uh, that was, what is that? <laughs> that was the Paradigm case. Oh, yeah, that movie sucks. <laughs> yeah, Hitchcock slept in the director's trail while the actors uh, were acting. So my in my defense of Coppola in this, I, like, I understand why people say that he doesn't have like a discernible style exactly. But at the same time, like, I, I, I kind of disagree with, I, I don't know. I just feel like there is stuff about this movie that is very Coppola, you know, like, not just like you think stylistically for sure, like you have all the weird like moving fast clouds, which is so much like Rumblefish stuff. And yes, this movie is kind of lacking in style in terms of it being style, like it's not a stylish movie. But I don't know, like the, the weird touches that I feel like the only he would bring, like 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 we said, it's starting with a big party. That <laughs> seems like such a couple of thing, but like the weird part with uh like his his sense of humor is very strange i feel like coppola's always had a weird sense of humor and i'm sure it was in the script but like the part where they go to show who the what the dad's doing he's directing this commercial where it's these busty women dressed up as like cowgirls like on a giant ear of corn that's very weird that would not that's not a, a thing that would normally be in like a kid's movie <laughs> in the mid 90s or from any era that's just very strange. Um, and I, I like that Coppola isn't like locked into a style. Like I think it like it gets a little tiresome sometimes when Scorsese whips out Gimme Shelter for the fourth time. Like I think a lot of directors fall back on their style and it kind of feels like fan fiction. Like you watch a not good Tim Burton movie and you're like, okay, yeah, it's like the real world, but the trees are all bendy and it's just sort of his dark fairy tale thing again. Or Wes Anderson, you brought up, like I feel like he relies so much on his little bag of tricks, which I think like directors that have like, this is my style gets locked in there. And Scorsese's broken out of that. Like definitely like like Shutter Island, I feel feels very much like, he's made many movies that don't feel like. Yeah, Kundun is, you know. Yeah, Kundun, like, like it's still, you can tell it's him. Like, he's the author for sure, but it's not, like, locked into, like, people thinking, I hope a lot of people think he just does Goodfellas over and over again. But, like, it's even interesting you brought up Woody Allen, because I feel like even Woody Allen, though definitely, like, you can tell that he wrote a thing, his style changed a lot. You know, he would go through little pockets of, like, like, you would have never thought the guy who directed Husbands and Wives was the same person who directed sleeper or even annie hall like there's something so like and he every few years mixes it up or like match point is that what it's called like where he pushes himself constantly i think to try or like deconstructing harry is all jump cuts and it feels very different than you know like the same guy who made purple rosa carol i guess this is a an interesting thing that we haven't really discussed thoroughly now that we're at jack 
what is the Coppola touch? Like, what is it? Since none of his movies have a discernible, like, what's the Coppola shot? You know, that's, or is he a direct, or is he a director that doesn't really necessarily? That's not what makes a good director. Like, maybe you don't need to be like Alfred Hitchcock and have like this is how an Alfred Hitchcock movie looks. Like, I feel like even I don't know. Like, may prove me wrong, or maybe I'm wrong, but like I feel like Orson Welles doesn't have something that's in the way the movies all look that's the same like i don't know if you could see a shot like you would know a shot from citizen kane but like like a long take i guess like in touch of evil or magnificent ambersons but like what is like a frame what is a moment from orson welles movie that feels like oh that's an orson welles thing or is he just a really really good filmmaker you're right like uh well with orson (laughs) welles like it's not like oh like citizen kane one of the things that's famous for deep focus photography it's not like deep focus photography then right. became the orson welles thing but you can credit you know? that a lot to greg tolan the cinematographer on on citizen kane you know like yeah and coppola it's, oh, it's kind of always changing but there's definitely always the themes of like family being very important and that's definitely here in, in jack so like i think coppola is clearly drawn to movies that are about family and the importance of family and the importance of like kind of you know like that's a thing like this this what's weird that like i'm sure this script maybe was originally written with this big party at the beginning but clearly it's a thing that coppola is going to be drawn to being like that's how so many of my movies start it was it was written with a big party at the beginning but it was coppola's idea to make it a costume party Mm. So it was just like a regular party. It was just a regular party, but Coppola's like, let's make it a costume party because that adds uh, whimsy and <laughs> at, and it allows for for comedy. If it, they're just at yeah. a regular and dinner right. party and, and a woman who right. is like, you know, one month pregnant, two months pregnant, all of a sudden <laughs> starts to have a miscarriage, which is which is what. I mean, if you like think about like what what's going through the minds of the adult characters, like yeah, Diane Lane <laughs> thinks she's having a miscarriage. Yeah, the baby's gonna die, and this yeah, is like not movie. You know, not not a fun, good light thing. But if you, but everyone's in silly costumes, <laughs> and now there are gags because they're in silly costumes. But I think that's a great instinct on his behalf, and I think at heart. Coppola is an experimental filmmaker. He doesn't want it. Like if this was made by somebody else, even if he was approached by Rob Williams, if someone else directed this movie, I don't know who that would have been. And say Chris Columbus directed this in 1996. I think that odd element would not be here. And it would be a more straightforward, like there's a lot of Robin Williams movies that I don't really have a desire to watch because they just kind of look like, you know, just sort of sappy things. And like this movie could have very well been that kind of thing, but because it's Coppola, I feel that what's what brings it into a stranger place. There's something weirder about, about it than if somebody else made it, it would have been more straightforward. You know, if Gary Marshall had made this movie, great filmmaker, but I think it would have been a little more straightforward or following the script and they wouldn't have had the idea to have the party seem be a costume party. I think that's the Coppola, that's what he adds is these kind of weird sort of takes on how you can show these, you know, these 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 things, you know, it's very much like someone could have made Heart of Darkness straightforward, but the idea of making it in Vietnam and making it really surreal, like that's like this Coppola thing or taking a gangster story and making it emotional and about family as opposed to like the, the blood and the violence and the crime. So it's like he, 
I think that's sort of the thing that he brings to Wilde is this his interesting viewpoint, which is different than like, all my movies go from fast motion to slow motion and you hear a kink song. You know, like, that's, like I think you can be that kind of filmmaker and it's fine. Uh, I'm not mentioning any names, <laughs> but like, I think I like that his, his style is his themes and his viewpoint, not necessarily word that, what the camera's doing. And so, yeah, this movie isn't very cinematic, but it still feels very culpable to me. And I didn't know this Pinocchio thing. And now that I know that, that's like, makes this movie even more interesting to me. Like this is him knowing that he will never be able to do this insane version of Pinocchio. So this is his version of Pinocchio in a way, you know. Warner Brothers did make a live action Pinocchio called The Adventures of Pinocchio, I think. Like, is that the one with Jonathan Taylor Thomas yeah. and Orlando? Yeah. That looks terrible. <laughs> I never saw that one. I don't uh, know why. I, maybe it's a generational thing. Uh, I don't know how much older than me Guillermo del Toro is, but like this connection that they have with Pinocchio, I, like, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I maybe really I didn't understand. watch it when what I was... Is... <laughs> I mean, the Disney cartoon's great, but I'm not like... Yeah, there's something about like the idea of like you make this fake thing and it becomes a real boy and it's him learning the world and how tough it is and I don't know what would you say the thing like, you can't lie and yeah the thing I mean <laughs> what I remember from like the the feelings uh, that I remember from watching Pinocchio whenever I did when I was a kid and then I rewatched it uh, maybe like a year or two ago the thing that always that I remembered was of course him being swallowed by the whale. I remember the traumatic stuff, him being swallowed by the whale and going to pleasure Island. And that kid turns into a donkey donkey. It's disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. That's like the stuff that (laughs) stuck with me. about The version of Pinocchio that ended up getting made was directed by Steve Barron. Of course. (laughs) Whom you might know as the director of the great, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie from 1990, which, no joke, that movie is fucking great. That movie uh, is, it, yeah, it's good. <laughs> that movie's good. Dark. It's a dark movie. It feels <laughs> like a Charles Bronson movie, but with the Ninja Turtles in it. No, that movie is, it is dark. Like, the, the streets are so riddled with crime in that movie. And it's like the, it's like City of God almost, where the children, <laughs> children can become, like, one gang or the other gang and that those are the only options and spoiler alert for the you know the the turtles win but but shredder or when when splinter kills shredder his last words to him right and it's it's splinter it's it's not the turtles he says like death comes to us all hiroshi he calls him by his japanese name it's like but what comes to you is worse death without honor and then drops him <laughs> off a building into a garbage truck where Casey uh, Casey Jones Casey Jones turns on the compactor and crushes Shredder to death in the compactor <laughs> of a garbage truck that is a I love that movie, movie. <laughs> I saw when I was five years old a million times I my mom took me and my brothers to see an opening day and it was like, it was insanely crowded as you expected. And it was great. Seeing that movie on the big screen was great. I, that is one of my favorite movies. It really is. Like it's that, dark. You don't, it's, it's a dark movie. That, that is, that's a special, it's a special kind of kids movie when you can watch it a million times when you're a kid 
and it's just like hey like a good time whatever kids want to get out of it and then you watch it when you're like 35 years old and you go oh shit like that line the line delivered by a giant animatronic rat what comes to you (laughs) is something worse death without honor has haunted me (laughs) for the past uh you know five five years or however old i am now and he all steve baron followed that up with coneheads also great Ooh, okay i could could go on the tangent about coneheads how good it is it is real no it is good (laughs) michael mckeon's also in it it's a movie where the i watched that again i put it on a vulcan video just you know like hey here's a random thing and the the whole there was uh, after the election in 2016 there was a whole thing of like what movies play differently now that it's trump's america like let's watch what you know like like let's watch some fucking serious ass movie you know about about whatever like high noon how does high noon play now movies about the blacklist <laughs> or whatever but what really changed for me was watching coneheads where it starts out with michael mckeon is an ins agent and he has a proposal for his bosses. He wants to build an electric fence between the U.S. and Mexico. And he has a like a little display built. And he's like, all right. So, you know, Paco is trying to cross the border. He has a little doll and then he touches the fence and like, you know, gets shocked. And his bosses are like, oh, like that's a bad idea. You're demoted. And I'm thinking this isn't funny, not because it's a bad joke. Not because it's not a funny joke, but because uh, this is like what we're like half a step away from this people really trying this. And the whole thing about actually I really succeeding at it. Yeah. And then I realize now that like Conehands was a story about immigrants. Like Beldar is an immigrant who is not here by choice. He, he's stranded here. He just wants to make a good life for his family. He wants nothing more than to go home. But his his daughter has grown up here in america now and this is life for her and she doesn't want to go to some place she has never heard of so he wants to so then he has to stay find a way to keep his family here all while this government guy wants to bust him for the crime of being a productive citizen like he has his own driving you know school and it was like just so upsetting for me to watch Coneheads <laughs> in like in 2017, I'm like just leave Beldar alone, okay? <laughs> leave him and his family alone. Yeah, they're and, not from they're not from here, but they are good people and they're contributing to society more than naturally born people here do, man. <laughs> so Dan Aykroyd, as always, finger on the pulse and ahead of his time. I stand by. I stand by everything that man's made. I apologize for uh, none of it. It's all good. <laughs> I, I uh, Blues Brothers two thousand. Great. Nothing but trouble. Great. Coneheads. I I apologize <laughs> for going on an emotional tangent about Conehead. You know this is good. Back to Jack. <laughs> we were actually talking about. So, anyways, why we went on the tangent? Steve Barron then followed Coneheads up with the Adventures of Pinocchio. He was the one who was able to make the Pinocchio that Coppola could not make. Uh, starring Martin Landau as Geppetto, uh, my favorite Italian actor, Martin Landau, and <laughs> Jonathan Taylor Thomas as Pinocchio. Udo Kier is in that movie. Rob Schneider, speaking of Trump, in that movie. 
John French, uh, the, quite a quite a cast. Maybe wow. that movie's really Genevieve good. Genevieve Bujol, BB Newworth. Yeah, maybe that's a good movie. Maybe we need to yeah, give it a shot. Maybe The Adventures of Pinocchio. I love a JTT. I'm a fan. You know, I don't know what he's up to these days in the 21st century, <laughs> but I like Jonathan Taylor. He seems like a good guy. So, yeah, because if you've never seen it. No, no, I never yeah, saw that one. I'll watch that over the Roberto Benini Pinocchio. <laughs> oh boy! I mean, again, like with like, well, I I don't get it. <laughs> but, but back to back 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 backtrack to Jack. <laughs> Jump back. So this movie was a hit. Jack was a hit. So like all the hate that this movie has currently, and then there was a critical failure. Like if you watch the Cisco Liebert episode, which I did because I do that now for every movie that I watch, because YouTube has every single one on there, which is amazing. So you can literally type in Cisco Liebert, name a movie, and watch them. They both agreed that they hated this movie. They did not think it was funny. They thought it was terrible. They put forth the argument that we were talking about of them being like, how can the director of The Godfather and The Godfather 2 make such shit? But this movie did well. Like It was like the number one movie in America that week or whatever. Like it yeah, actually opened made... it. Opened it number one. <laughs> number one, which As, means uh... it was a hit with like people wanted to see it. Like maybe definitely because of Robin Williams, like definitely because you're on a like 90s Robin Williams high you know, like everything he's making is just like hitting gold, you know, in the mid nineties, like this is pretty soon. Like Mrs. Doubtfire was 93, I think 94. So like, this is after that. Like, so he's, he's just coming off of uh, Robin Williams is coming off of Jumanji and the Bird yeah. Cage. Both beloved hits, like both movies that have like did well, like very well. I would assume Jumanji did well. Cause I remember liking it and everyone else liking it. Birdcage definitely hit the movie's amazing, but like, so yeah, everyone's gonna go see the new Robin Williams movie. I don't, I'm sure most of those people don't even know Coppola directed it, they don't think they care. But the, this movie was not a flop, this movie did well, <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, again, it's like, what, what, what do you want, you know? Like, uh, he, <laughs> like, he's made movies that you know, for box office hits, critical hits, so like one, but not the other. Like, yeah, this movie, it made, uh, made So Coppola made three hits in a row at this point. Like Godfather 3 did well, Dracula did very well, and Jack opened at number one. So the fact that there's still the dialogue of, and then he just made shit, and then he just was a failure, and he just like, you know, like as, as if he, we, taught, we mentioned, he paid his debt back. The bet, debt has been paid. He is now just making movies that are hits. Yeah, the <laughs> idea, I doing. guess, well, that he's turning out the idea that he is a washed up filmmaker coupled with the fact that he is turning out hits one after the other, one even something like Jack. Another. It's not like, you know, I mean, I th- th- there are probably better examples, but like uh, Ed Wood you know, like finished out his career doing softcore porn, doing like nudie cutie movies, you know, uh, a far cry from from Plan 9 and, and Glenn <laughs> or Glenda. But like, yeah, is that a guy that met like a, you know, he had a an unfitting end to his his career, you know, like what what is uh, what made him famous? Like, yeah, yeah, that's not this is not a great ending. We don't want to talk about 
about that when when we do the Ed Wood movie. We're gonna not really end on the high. <laughs> we're gonna end on the high. We're not really gonna touch on that. It's like we'll like yeah, what like the the Coppola movie would end on like apocalypse now or whatever and then and then he made a bunch of good movies after that and then he made movies that made a lot of money after that yeah but i think it, i think it's, it's time for that conversation to change in the end of like he made great things and then he became washed up and broke or whatever because jack was a hit dracula was a hit Godfather the three was made money was nominated for a million oscars like these are three movies in a row that a lot of people saw and did well commercially. And sure, Jack wasn't a critical hit. I think most critics hated it, but the people spoke and they went to go see the movie. They went to go see it. So shut up. No. <laughs> He's like some washed up guy. I just want to. I'm done, with, I'm done with it. We I've, figured I've out got... that that is the false story. That is a fake story of how Coppola ended up being. He is not a washed up guy. Successful winemaker slash making hit movie after hit movie in the early 90s. He's almost like, and I think this will be very true uh, post Rainmaker. He's almost like how like how Sam Shepard is as far as his movie career goes. Like he shows up in movies like, and hey, that guy was good in that movie, but he had a small part and then he wasn't mm -hmm. in movies for a while. Then he showed up and then just had another small part. It's like, well, because he's a theater guy, he's like, I need money for a play. <laughs> so I'm going to be in some movie. You know, I'm going to play old Hamlet in Hamlet. I'm going to show up in Black Hawk Down and then I've got enough money to put on some weird pretentious play. <laughs> and you won't see me again for five years until I need more money for another pretentious play. Uh, I, I'm a fan of one half of Sam Shepard's career. I like them both. I like both halves. His plays are Copeland's <laughs> almost like that. He... Uh, yeah, he, he couldn't get Pinocchio made and was on one level ready to be done with Hollywood, then needed more money for his vineyard. So he made a movie and it was Jack and he got more money for his vineyard. And I mean, now he makes movies based on the earnings from his vineyard, you know. Well, yeah, we're, but we're um, about to get into the period where he's making movies that he just wants to make. Like, he's kind of like a retired guy building birdhouses, <laughs> but his birdhouses are these weird indie movies. And we're about, we, we're one movie away from getting there. You know, Rainmaker is still sort of the last, the next episode, which we're doing, spoiler, Rainmaker, is him kind of doing his last big Hollywood thing. And then we're going to get into this weird sort of indie, low-budget, experimental really interesting period uh not to say this isn't interesting period we're now with jack but uh yeah i just i just wanted this long rant this long <laughs> is just because i think we need to stop saying that he became a failure and wash up because he didn't so it's that it's just it's not true he had a tough patch of earning of, of owing money went into debt because he had a failed studio which is an admirable thing to fail on he still made great movies in that time. He's now out of that and has made hit movies after like there's directors that don't come back from that. 
There's directors that get into drink or broke or whatever, and they don't bounce back. But Coppola bounced back. Like he was able to make three movies in a row that did well, that people knew about. They were part of not just making money, but part of the conversation. Like Dracula became such a pop culture thing. Same with Godfather the Three in a way. So yeah, like there, there was there was a pinball game of Dracula. <laughs> there were most video directors games would be of lucky. Dracula. Like most artists would be so lucky to have another wave of things that appeal to the to people like that. And Jack didn't appeal in the same way, but it still did well. It's and I think it's a good movie. Um, <laughs> rant over. It wasn't nominated for any awards. Thankfully, not even a raspberry. I was worried there was up for some raspberries. Not even uh, a razzy, but but it was up for some weird awards that I've never heard of. Uh, well, I do the one I did hear of, the Kids Choice Awards. I know that one nominated for Best Movie Actor, Robin Williams. But then there's the NCLR Bravo Awards. What is that? I have no idea. J Lo, actress in a feature film. Oh, we haven't mentioned yet. J Lo's in this movie. <laughs> she is his teacher. She's teacher. looking like a a very very mid nineties woman uh, with, <laughs> with brown lipstick. Yeah, uh, and the hats. Oh my God! So, uh, if <laughs> when it flashes forward to Jack's graduation, which is presumably in 2003, so I think me and Jack were in the same class, even though it's like in the future, the it's still like a a very mid 90s fashion. And oh my God, the hats! It was like there was a certain kind of hat that women wore in the mid 90s. <laughs> It's like a blossom. The uh, um, uh, oh my god, what, what what were their names? The sister sister girls, uh, they wore that kind of hat a lot. The Maori sisters. Oh uh, yeah yeah yeah. Every every woman is wearing that kind of hat in the graduation scene, but also every man is wearing a fedora. And I I don't know why, this was like decades after men stopped wearing hats, and I feel like that's because this is the first from beginning to end contemporary film that Coppola has made since, I mean, One from the Heart or The Conversation. Like One from the Heart kind of takes place, you know, in its own out of time stylistic world. Yeah. There, there are the, the present day scenes of Peggy Sue Got Married. Life Without Zoe does take place in when it's set, uh, you know, mm -hmm. at 89, but it's a little yeah. short film. And then every other film Coppola has made has been a period film. I never even think about that. You're right. Yeah, but this one is not. Yeah, this one is like wholly a very 1996 movie. And and you're right, the way with, with like the, the fart jokes and all the inappropriate <laughs> humor in it, that was just the way kids' movies were at that time. <laughs> if you made this movie now, there'd be all whole different stuff <laughs> that I'd have no idea about. Because I'm yeah. so out of it. So <laughs> the other award it's up for, the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. Have you this ever- This is something I've... I wanted to talk to you about. <laughs> what the heck is that? So the Razzies, who I hate, and if you hear my other podcast, The World is Wrong podcast, we, our mortal enemies are the Razzies. We hate them. They are the only people that we put hate upon on, that po on a mostly positive podcast. But now- I have the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards that kind of puts some ill will towards. Apparently, what is yes, that? 
Apparently, the Razzies, there was a rival Bad Movie Awards to the Razzies, which <laughs> lasted from 1978 through 2006. <laughs> I've never heard of this. It was started by two uh, movie theater ushers in the, the Hastings, at the Hastings Theater. Uh, they, they were released by the Hastings Bad Cinema Society. Jack was a, a nominee for worst picture of the year at the Stinkers Awards. <laughs> the, uh, the, the the winner was Striptease. Which is, I like that movie. I don't get it. Yeah, the Stinkers Awards I don't hate as much as the Razzies looking over what they have because they don't seem as full of pure hate as the Razzies. But still, there's some good movies here that they're nominated there were, for. So, uh, so worst picture of the year the winner was Striptease. Never seen it. The other nominees were Independence Day, Great. Jack, The Stupids, Great. and Twister. All those movies are good. All five of those movies are good. I haven't seen The Stupids since Great. 1996, and I remember really liking it. That's <laughs> really good. They have this dishonorable mention. So those are their nominees, but then they have dishonorable mentions. and Which is listed, a lot. It's listed alphabetically. And so I'm going to read through it. Barbed Wire. Great. Bully. Great. Biodome. Great. Black Sheep. Great. Bogus. Bulletproof. The Cable Guy. Great. Carpool. Chain Reaction. The Crow City of Angels. Daylight. Diabolique. Ed. Eddie. The English Patient. (laughs) What? Wait a minute. Pause. (laughs) That's like a movie that won an Oscar that year for Best Picture. Hang on. The English Patient. Evita, executive executive Great. decision. Great. Sit down. Fargo. Wait, what? <laughs> wait, wait. Hold on. Stop. 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 Fargo. Fargo. What? Fargo. That, movie, that is that is not just the best movie of 1996, which it was. That is one of the best movies ever, and most people agree on that. Like, that is a great, great, like, who are these? Okay, now I'm starting to get the feelings of negativity that they have in the rising. Fargo? And also, you're just being a dick. If you're like, you have your five movies that you hate, and then you're going to list, like, 50 movies that you also think are shit, and you want to take people down. Fargo? Are you kidding me? Flipper, From Dusk Till Dawn, Happy Gilmore, The Island of Dr. Moreau, Great. Jingle All the Way, Joe's Apartment, The Juror, Kazam, Kids in the Hall Bring Candy. What great Kingpin. Great. <laughs> Little Indian Big City. Mars Attacks. Great. I don't think you understood Mars Attacks if you include it in a list of the worst movies. <laughs> Mary Riley or Mission Impossible. What? Mr. Wrong, great. Theodore Rex, and Too Much. That, that, that list doesn't make any sense. That's just I, like, they just listed movies that came out in 1996. <laughs> what, then what did they like? Then what was the movies that they thought were good? If you're like, fuck you, Fargo, then what is the movie that you think is good? I can understand like, hey, like, uh, fuck you, Striptease, The Stupids, even fuck you, Twister. Like, all right, all right, all right. Also, fuck you, Fargo, The English Patient, <laughs> and Evita. Okay, well, what about <laughs> fuck you, Mars Attacks, <laughs> and Kingpin? That makes sense. And then when you look fuck at you, like, Mission Impossible. <laughs> but then, so here's the thing that's like you're getting into some uh, Razzie hate. Biggest acting stretch was Ellen DeGeneres for playing a heterosexual woman. 
because she's a lesbian. Get it? Hey, Stinkers Band Movie Awards, go fuck yourself on that bullshit. That uh, was that was <laughs> the one where I'm like, oh, I wish I could drop kick you. I've I've never had a movie awards, not even the Razzies. I've wanted to drop kick well, into I, the sun. Come on, like it's. Um, yeah, and like I'm just looking over the awards, and like it's pretty, you know, fish in a barrel for most of it. It's like, okay, yeah, you hate Adam Sandler. Like, welcome to the club of idiots who don't know anything. Also, uh, these you're are gonna the pick people on- that yeah. hate Adam Sandler then that now like beg for this Adam Sandler. <laughs> that is so true. That, that is so. I mean, people true. like I'll, I will admit. I'm not I have not been a fan of latter day Sandler stuff. And I like I like, oh ridiculous six. I wish he would go back and make <laughs> something like Happy Gilmore again yeah. here. He you know, he's nominated in a category for that. Uh my, my favorite category is uh worst on screen hairstyle. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting nitpicky now, Stinker. Especially because the winner is only is the only real choice here. Stephen Baldwin in Biodome. I mean, okay, whatever. Like you got your gag, but then they their other nominees are Marlon Brando in The Island of Dr. Moreau, who had no hair, <laughs> and then Francis Capra in Kazam, who I assume is the kid in Kazam. Yeah, and let's, I assume, let's take a kid down. Good job, Stinker. I assume he had the, the average kid haircut of the mid nineties. <laughs> They think Brain Candy is a painfully unfunny comedy. They're wrong. That movie's great. Looking back to the past, they give it a war. Like they mentioned Shortcuts as being a bad movie. That movie's fucking masterpiece. I have no time for you, Stinker's Bad Movie Awards. Let's never talk about you again. The end. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, as, as much as it's over. As much as I hate the Razzies, I did, for comparison, look at the Razzies of this year. And they don't pick on Jack. Uh, they they go after striptease, the island of Dr. Moreau, the stupids. They go after at the the Razzies go after that is or like Mission Impossible. Which and, I don't understand. And to one, you know, to some degree, twi- uh, they go after Twister, which I think works as being Twister. You know, <laughs> like if That's what, like I, I what, understand. I think what more did you think... want from Twister? It's a fun movie about people chasing tornadoes. That movie's great. Yeah, but the Razzies this year, they, they do not go after Fargo or the English Patient <laughs> no, or, or a little kid. The Stinkers <laughs> Bad Movie Awards appears to be a list of movies that you remember came out that last year. <laughs> and you're like, they're all bad, whatever, I don't know. Everything's bad. It would be interesting, a challenge to whichever these assholes are still around, I'm guessing the Razzies. What do you like? What is actually good to you? Like, what are the movies that you like? That is the best thing of the year. That is something I enjoy. Instead of wallowing in some unnecessary hate. Anyways, clearly we're done talking about Jack because we've gone long for him. Is there anything else that you want to say about Jack? The, the, the one, the two things that I have left, if you'll allow me. One, I thought it was interesting that one of the kids that was like one of Jack's friends or bullies, I don't remember which, had the same haircut as Al Pacino in Godfather 3. <laughs> Furthering my opinion that that is not a 70s haircut, but a 90s haircut. And then it's very strange 
when you find out that this movie is written by the guy who created the Purge series. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which maybe adds to the darkness that we're finding within this film. Like, the guy who wrote this movie <laughs> wrote and directed the Purge movies, uh, James DeMonaco. So he made this movie and then, you know, 20 years later had great success with one of the more recent successful horror franchises. The only other things I want to mention are when Jack is depressed, Jack stops shaving and grows a beard. So Robin Williams looks like he did in Awakenings when he has a beard. Diane, Diane Lane, n- neither of the women in this movie have a whole lot to do, but they are the more prominent roles. Jennifer Lopez as the teacher, Diane Lane as the mom. They do a good job with what they have. And Diane Lane, like she's got some emotion to work with. However, here in Jack, we have something I think is rare, which is a like a thankless father role where the dad is still involved and he's caring and supportive, but he's also kind of neither here nor there. Yeah. Just like, ah, whatever. Like giving like sort of bland, bland, like supportive stuff he might as well not be in the movie you know he yeah, doesn't contribute it is, that much it is weird like the way diane lane interacts with jack it feels like a single mom like it feels like a mom who needs this kid around and it's weird that there is equally a dad character but he like travels for work and he just sort of in all the scenes he's kind of like well okay you know like in like diane lane is the emotional one so it is weird like i feel like if i were to rewrite this movie just take the dad out. He doesn't seem to need to be there and just have it be this intense relationship between mom and son with Diane Lane, who is good in this movie. Yeah. And worth mentioning, this is her third movie with Coppola? After right? The Outsiders and Rumblefish. Rumblefish. So yeah. like, he, like, it's nice to see her kind of back again as a woman this time, not a girl. And just good as always. I love Diane Lane. But yeah, dad, dad totally unnecessary. Like that actor's yeah. good. Brian Kerwin is good. But that character just feels like, why was that even in the story? Yeah, n- not even at the point of like, oh, like he's an absent dad. He should be around. Like, no, he's there. It just like kind Nothing of neither it. here nor there. So I've got, I, I guess I've got two more things. One is silly and the other is not. <laughs> so when uh, watching the old Siskel and Ebert show of this, and you're right, you can find most Siskel and Ebert most stuff on youtube and it's great and a lot of times it's like just a single review sometimes it's the full show but there is this website which i've been plugging for forever siskelebert.org uh, where they have the full episodes and sometimes sometimes they include the commercials and when uh, <laughs> my, my wife and i were watching this episode of siskel and ebert after we finished jack there was a commercial for the james bond film festival in Montego, Jamaica. It was a TV ad, like with an 800 number, like call, you know, book your your ticket today for the James Bond film festival. It it was very odd. It was like (laughs) a step above a scam. (laughs) (laughs) This is like fire festival level. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I just assume like you go to a hotel in Jamaica and they show a bunch of James Bond movies. It mentioned like, (laughs) it it didn't say like, oh, like Timothy Dalton, you know, will be there. (laughs) You just like get a videotape projected of at the time. I'm guessing, you know, maybe they have GoldenEye as as a sneak on VHS. 
That's weird. But I mean, Jamaica is like they made Bond. Like there's the James Bond islands, which are real islands that are kind of out. I thought that was more the Caribbean, but or the British Virgin Islands. But maybe it's I don't know. But like it's, Jamaica, um, Doctor Knows in Jamaica, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. James Bond goes to the Caribbean more than you would expect he would. It, it, it's a treat whenever they they leave in the commercials for <laughs> um, the, these old Cisco and Ebert shows and like <laughs> you, you get to see a commercial where like the new radical doritos come and it's a bag <laughs> of doritos that comes from outer space and everyone's like <laughs> like looking up in the streets like oh my god i gotta put on sunglasses to look at the new <laughs> bag of doritos that arrive from outer space <laughs> or john lithgow uh shilling for discover card and he's like playing mm. a banjo talking about like all the great stuff he bought with his Discover card. Okay. Um, and you don't expect that a James Bond festival ever existed, but it did um, apparently. <laughs> well, it's worth noting that the James Bond movies in, in Jamaica, Live and Let Die was filmed in parts of Jamaica. Dr. No, the new one, No Time to Die, which would not be part of the festival in 1996. But Ian Fleming's GoldenEye, which is the name of the estate that Ian Filming lived, lived at, where he wrote his books, is in Jamaica. So there definitely is a strong Jamaica connection to James Bond. Who knows what that meant the festival is or was, or if it actually ever happened. You can rent GoldenEye, by the way, for $10,000 a night if you want to right now. Cool. Um, <laughs> and there's a James Bond beach there. So clearly they've really leaned into the... Uh, James Bondness of it. So if you're in Jamaica and love James Bond, do it. I, what right. I found interesting about the Siskel and Ebert episode was they also review another Robin Williams movie, which is the Straight to Video Aladdin sequel, the part three, because Robin Williams wasn't in part two. Because he was still mad at Disney. They loved it and they like it way more than Jack. <laughs> the Straight to Video <laughs> Aladdin sequel. So. I lied. I guess I have yet another silly thing to mention and then the serious thing. There's a shot of Jack and and his friends at Halloween and they're all mm -hmm. in like costumes and stuff. And I swear one kid is dressed up as Gary Oldman from Dracula as Prince Vlad. He is wearing a top hat, a like a blazer type coat yep. with puffy yep. pirate sleeves and he's wearing yep. like tiny tiny sunglasses and he has like yep. long hair yep you are totally correct on that that is definitely and, in that movie and here's the thing even if coppola had not directed this movie you could still have that kid i bet that kid still <laughs> would be dressed up like that because that's how big dracula was <laughs> and then the other thing i'd want to mention is this quote uh from coppola about how he approached the sort of inherent darkness of the material of jack you know, about this story about this kid who's, uh, you know, not going to live a full life, sort of, you know, yeah. like that for me as a child watching it, one of the things that stuck with me was Jack doing math and realizing like, what do I want to be when I grow up? I want to be alive. <laughs> the numbers yeah. like, you know, in the hundreds, like when he, like what he how old he would be when he's uh, 28 yeah. or something. So Coppola here says, my son Gio only lived 22 years, but it was a complete 22 years. He got to do everything. He got to be a kid. He got to be an adult. He got to fall in love. 
got to shoot all this that all that stuff on the cotton club and so while it's sad to think of other people or other species that don't live quite as long as us there are people who live 80 years and are miserable the whole time so when I saw this story in which ultimately a character with a disability doesn't live long, I found it touching. There you go. And it's sad to think too that Jack, the character, lives longer in terms of his exaggerated than Robin Williams actually did. Yeah. Uh, Bill Cosby has a, like he, he gives a touching speech that then Jack uh, uh, reiterates in his valedictorian speech so we can talk about it without the uh, dwelling on bill cosby too much that uh, jack is like is he he tells jack like have you ever seen a shooting star they're rare and they light they don't last very long but they light up the whole sky and when you're watching them you forget about everything else you just focus on the star the shooting star and you're glad that you know you got to see it it, it lit up the whole sky for for the brief time it was around and Jack reiterates that in his valedictorian speech when he is an old man with gray hair. And it is very uh, uh, emotion provoking, emotional to see yeah. Robin Williams with gray hair. And when I was watching, I thought like, well, like that, well, that describes Robin Williams too. You know, yeah. he, he yeah. wasn't, uh, he was, I mean, he, was around for a long time, you know, working Mindy up through, up through whenever. But yeah, he didn't get to be an old man. He didn't get to have gray hair like Jack does at the end. But man, while he was here, you know, he lit up yeah. everything. He lit up everything. Yeah. Lit up everything. Yeah. And I was, I was, a li- I would be a little, I was a little kid and I watched Mork and Mindy reruns. And that's how I knew who Robin Williams was. Me, me too. Yeah. And then, like, yeah, he had this amazing run of films from, I mean, in the 90s on. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think kids connect with him. I know I did even before this idea of Jack because he felt like a big kid. Like there was something that he had that connected with kids because of his sort of like kind of crazy, unruly behavior, the way he was on like, you know, when he did stand up or when he was on like The Tonight Show or whatever. He, he had this sort of like, no rules sort of like just exuberance of just like like he just had like he felt like a big kid and so it makes sense that he would be in this movie jack where he is a big kid i saw robin williams once in real life oh yeah when i was going to college in new york i walked into tower records on 68th and broadway right as he was walking out and it took me a minute to register like is that robin williams and like my head followed him and there was a woman who was sitting on the floor by the inter-exit door of tower records and she looks up and her face lights up and she says hey robin and he says hey and then speed walks out (laughs) of the store and i like i ran out after him because like was that was that really robin (laughs) <laughs> Williams, I ran out after him. He was just, he was speed walking through <laughs> New York. And I got out my phone and I called a friend like, I just saw Robin Williams. <laughs> and I imagine like, wow, I bet he has to speed walk everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody on planet Earth. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a blessing and a, 
and a pain to be a to be a famous person yeah uh, who's beloved as like someone like he was so jack we did it uh i'm really excited our next episode is a movie i've never seen we're doing the rainmaker written by john grisham so it's like coppola getting into like the john grisham craze of the 90s we're gonna have a special guest my co-host on the other show I do, other podcasts I do, The World's Wrong, Andras Jones, who is a self-proclaimed John Grisham expert. So he's going to bring us some mad John Grisham knowledge, which I don't fucking know anything about. I've never read a single book by this guy. I've only ever seen The Firm and Christmas with the Crank. So I don't really know about, like I've never seen The Time to Kill or all the big, so I guess I got to watch all these before the next episode to get into the John Grisham uh, state of mind. Uh, so I'm very excited for that. It's a movie I've always wondered about, but never watched. As a movie, I never watched. Uh, I've never seen it. I it was a movie though. I thought I would, because it seemed like one of these like it's a courtroom movie, and my mom really liked those. She really liked the John Grisham uh, movies, but for one reason or another, never saw it. So I am excited to uh, to watch it and uh, talk with Andras about John Grisham and John Grisham on film. And in a way, that's like a, 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 the closing of a chapter yeah. on, on a certain phase of Coppola's career. So it'll yeah. be interesting to talk about, talk about it uh, in terms of that as well. I agree. I'm very excited. To, and I'm excited that neither of us have seen it. So that'll be a very fascinating episode. Well, forgive my emotional tangents about uh, the Coneheads. I, <laughs> forgive I've... my emotional tangent on the Stinker Awards. But hey, this is what podcasts are about. It's good. Tangents are what make podcasts great. As you mentioned, Brian, you have another podcast with, with uh, Andros Jones. Yep, we're in a hiatus right now, so you can go back and listen to all the first two seasons that we've done, but we're about to get into season three uh, next month, and I'm very excited. We have so many good things. We're really, like, all the movies we saved up that we've been, like, they're too good to do, we decided to finally do for season three. So season three is, like, coming out the gate strong, so look for that next month. We're going to have a lot of good stuff and we're changing the format to every two weeks. So every two weeks, you're going to get a great episode where we talk about movies that the world is wrong about either critically or just whatever people forgot about this great thing, like movies that we think deserve attention and praise that aren't getting it or never got it. You can get in touch with us direct by email at directorswall at gmail.com, Twitter at the director's wall. Yeah, I haven't been on Twitter in a while. I think that's a good thing. I don't think the, the, there's got to be another way. Oh, wait, there is. Not really, <laughs> but kind of uh, called Instagram. Uh, <laughs> we're on that as well. Brian, you do our Instagram. Yeah. So you can find us at the director's wall. And I post only whenever we have an episode. So it's once in a blue moon. <laughs> but yeah, if you want to talk to us, if you send us a message, you know? I'll answer that message. I check it every day. We did get a like from one of the actors from the offer for our offer episode, so that was exciting. Yeah, that's something. You know, and even that, like that, even that's cool. Like, even as I'm excited a, about that. That's that's yeah. great. I think that's great. Yeah. They might not have listened to it, and they thought, "Oh, they mentioned the thing I'm in," but who cares? It's still it's anything. So please, like, we would love to hear your thoughts on this. If we got something wrong, if we got something right, and also 
we're wrapping up Coppola here. So we're gonna have to start thinking of another director. So if you have thoughts about that, I would love to, we would love to hear your thoughts on who you think yes. we should go through film by film. Clearly this is a years long project per season. <laughs> but you know what, if you, if you pick uh, Jess Franco, then yeah, we'll go through every, all 500 of Jess Franco's movies. Like you Ooh. tell us what you want. We're gonna, it's AJ's turn to pick. So like, like give him some, uh, give him some ideas, give him some, put some pressure on him of what you think we should do for season three. Jess Franco. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that would be something. The man you made like. never do Jess Franco. You made hundreds and hundreds of movies. Too, too many. At AJGO85 on Twitter at the same thing. And we uh, will return for Francis Ford Coppola's John Grisham's The Rainmaker. <laughs> you know, as we come to the end of this phase of our life, we find ourselves trying to remember the good times and trying to forget the bad times. And we find ourselves thinking about the future. We start to worry, thinking, what am I going to do? Where am I going to be in 10 years? But I say to you, hey, look at me. Please. Don't worry so much. Because in the end, none of us have very long on this earth. Life is fleeting. And if you're ever distressed, cast your eyes to the summer sky. When the stars are strung across the velvety night, and when a shooting star streaks through the blackness, turning night into day, make a wish. Think of me. Make your life spectacular. I know I did. Thank you.